The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back to our Missing Link podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Marwa Casey. Dr. Casey is a board-certified neurologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Her clinical practice focuses on care of people with MS and other neuroimmune conditions. She is actively involved with trainees of all levels, has helped design, and then was the first fellow to complete the Cedars-Sinai MS Fellowship, and she is active in research with several publications on the diagnosis and misdiagnosis of MS. Today, Dr. Casey is going to talk to us about how MS is diagnosed, why it's misdiagnosed so often, and also the future of MS prevention. For Dr. Casey's full bio, go ahead and check the show notes. But for now, I am so excited to introduce her to you. Dr. Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited for my listeners to hear from you. I mean, I've I'm trying to figure out how long we've been friends for on Instagram, but maybe two years now? Probably more than that. I think that's you're skipping the pandemic year. <laughs> I'd say like three or four, probably. Oh my gosh. Time is flying by. I know. (laughs) Wow. Well, for all of you guys listening, if you don't already know Dr. Casey, I'm going to include all of her YouTube, uh, Instagram, all of her channels where you can learn from her directly as well in the show notes. So make sure to check there, but we're going to be touching on diagnosis before we get into all of that. I want to ask you a question from my interview deck. Are you ready? I'm ready. Maybe (laughs) they're pretty (laughs) random. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Your question is if you could hire any wedding singer, who would you choose and what song? Oh, that's so good. Oh, I love that question. Um, I think that I would have to think about my husband when picking this. So it wouldn't be a singer, probably be a rapper. Um, and he is uh, obsessed with Jack Harlow right now, who's amazing. He's been a huge fan of his for long before Jack was super famous, like he is now. We actually tried to hire him for his birthday a couple of years ago. That's how <laughs> wow. That's how early he was on, on his stuff. He's really good. But I think that um, I would hire uh, Lil Dicky, who's one of his other favorites. Um, who I don't know if you know about him, but he's, he's a rapper, but he's also a comedian. And he just has like a really fun take on, on rap and on hip hop. And, um, it's super talented as a rapper too. So that's probably who I would hire. Um, 
literally any of his songs. <laughs> he has them all <laughs> memorized. So I think if I'm, I'm thinking about wedding uh, and what my husband would love and how fun that would be, it would be Lil Dicky. Awesome. That's very considerate of you and an amazing <laughs> answer. All right. So leading into our first question, I'm going to keep it pretty broad and then we can get further into it. But how is multiple sclerosis diagnosed? So it's not a simple answer to that question. I wish it was. This is something I'm working on as I'm making it straightforward, but it's definitely not like a pregnancy test when I can, I can have you pee on a stick and say, yes, you have it or no, you don't. It is a pretty long list of diagnostic criteria uh, where a doctor has to basically go and check off every box to get a person to a diagnosis. And those criteria fall into three big categories. One is you have to start with typical symptoms. So that's something like an optic neuritis or a transverse myelitis that is usually found in MS. MS can also cause symptoms that are found in dozens of other conditions like, like pain, fatigue. Those things are not specific enough to hang the diagnostic hat on. So we have to start with something pretty specific to MS like the things I just mentioned. Once we have that, we go on to proving that the disease uh, has been active in different points in time and different parts in the central nervous system. And that's where the multiple and multiple sclerosis comes in. So it has to be multiple parts of the nervous system at multiple points in time. And it used to be that before we had MRIs, that they would literally just wait for somebody to have their second attack to prove that multiple part. So they, they wouldn't diagnose them with MS until they'd had two attacks. They would just sit around and kind of wait. Um, and, you know, back then there really weren't any great treatments for MS anyway, so it didn't make a huge difference. But thankfully, now that we have great treatments that work best, the earlier you start them, we're able to diagnose it even just after the first attack using MRI. So the MRI can show you where the lesions are in the brain, where those sclerosis or scars are. And um, you basically go down and check off. There's four different parts of the brain and spinal cord that, that you have to hit at least two of those. And so the MRI can help you take a look at where the lesions are. Because again, dozens of things can cause white spots, lesions, plaques, I'm using all these terms interchangeably in the brain. Um, but the size, shape, and location of MS lesions can be pretty specific to where you can look across the room and be like, oh yeah, that's the brain MRI of somebody with MS. Um, so the brain MRI is a huge, huge part of the diagnosis. And that's step two. And that can help us show where the disease has been active and at what points in time. And then step three is literally just make sure it's not something else, right? So that's where all the blood tests come in, sometimes the spinal fluid to kind of cross off the list some of the more common MS mimics that may be relevant to that person. So you can see how it's a pretty long process. It's involved, there's multiple tests and it's not meant to be this way, but just by the way it's designed, there's a little bit of subjectivity in this process too. Yeah, that is pretty complex. And it sounds like it actually might be a little bit different for each person. Is it possible where one person might include the blood test where someone else might not need that? Absolutely. So that's why it's a very individualized process. And the physician really has to be thinking about that person in front of them. There's no real algorithm. So for example, somebody might be uh, vegan and you may have to say, well, are they getting enough vitamin B12 or is that what's masquerading as MS here? And so for somebody, I might check a B12 blood test to make sure that that's not what we're dealing with. Um, somebody else may have had really severe optic neuritis or optic neuritis in both eyes. And at that point, I say, maybe we need to check the blood test for neuromyelitis optica, which is a cousin and mimic of MS. 
Um, so it's definitely not the same tests for each person. And it really depends on what story they're telling you, what you find in their exam, and then how their MRI looks, what things you need to check to make sure that it's not something else. And then there are those people who walk in with like the classic symptoms, the classic MRI to where I say, we're pretty much done here. We don't need to do any extra testing to make sure that this is what you have. Wow. Yeah. That's a big variety. So when I was studying to become an MS specialist, I'm trying to think maybe six, six, six and a half years now, there was this thing. And now I'm wondering if it's still a thing called clinically isolated syndrome. Is that still a thing or is that pretty much negated? (laughs) Definitely still a thing. I think what you're uh, asking here is, is, has it just been rolled into MS, right? Like we just kind of slowly, and that, that is where we're going. So four years ago, the diagnostic criteria changed. And every time they get changed and updated, we're including more and more people under that umbrella of MS. And really we're including people earlier on in the disease process. So I talked about how in the beginning you you only could include people who'd had two typical attacks. And so we went from that to now including people who've had one attack and some evidence on their MRI. So um, clinically isolated syndrome is a part of the disease that happens before somebody meets all the criteria for MS. So it's called clinically isolated because you haven't met that multiple part of the MS. It doesn't mean there's no findings on an MRI. Sometimes people think that that's what it means, which is logical given the way they name this thing. But the isolated just means you've only had one attack. And um, what we're doing with each iteration of the the McDonald criteria, which are the diagnostic criteria, is finding new ways to prove somebody has those multiple lesions in time and space after their first clinical attack. So it's definitely still a thing, um, but the proportion of people who have clinically isolated syndrome is shrinking as we roll more and more people into MS. The other thing that's changed is that it's become less important to define where people are because a lot of our therapeutics for MS are now approved for people with clinically isolated syndrome too. Because what we know is that if you watch people with clinically isolated syndrome long enough, most of them will go on to develop MS. And the earlier we treat them for MS, the better they'll do in the long run. So um, definitely still a thing, it's shrinking and, and we're starting to just treat them like they are uh, they have MS anyway. So it's becoming less relevant to, to distinguish between the two. That's great. I mean, not that we're gonna get too much into medications today, but forever, it's, well, it feel, felt like forever, a lot of the disease modifying therapies were only for relapsing remitting, and it didn't mm-hmm. include that clinically isolated or even the active secondary progressive. So it sounds like, is, is that true? They're more FDA approved for other types? Definitely for, uh, so now they went from defining or uh, approving them for relapsing remitting MS to just all forms of relapsing MS. Um, I don't love the term relapsing remitting MS, to be honest, because sometimes it doesn't remit, right? Sometimes you have a relapse and that just sticks with you. So I think it's a pretty limiting term. So all the different forms of relapsing MS include clinically isolated syndrome. They include relapsing remitting MS, and they include people with progressive MS who are having new relapses. So these are not the slow changes that we associate with uh, progressive MS, but the big overnight changes that would define a relapse with the the new enhancing lesion on the MRI. Um, so the, the umbrella again for what is eligible for treatment has grown. And I think the new thing to watch out for is whether we're gonna treat radiologically isolated syndrome. So that is a phenomenon where people don't have any symptom of MS. I mean, they, they maybe they go to the ER cause God forbid they got in a car accident and they, have, they get a brain MRI to make sure that their brain is okay. And it just looks like the brain MRI of somebody with MS but they've never had a single symptom. 
So there's a huge debate now in the MS community as to, well, is this our first chance to intervene? Should we be treating these people? What is the likelihood that they will go on to develop MS? And um, there are certainly some things that make it much more likely, like if they have spinal cord lesions, for example, um, where you know at that point, some people say we really should probably be treating them because there's an over 80% chance in the next five years that this person will develop MS. But some of these people may have gone their whole lives without anyone knowing that they had these lesions in their brain. And at that point, do you really wanna expose them to the medication for MS and the risks those come with? Um, it's still a, a very big ongoing debate. Wow, that sounds so futuristic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the MRIs are getting better and better and they're more readily available in a lot of hospitals. So now instead of getting a CAT scan, for example, which is basically like an X-ray of the brain, it's great for the bones and not much else, you'll go straight to an MRI. This used to be unheard of because MRIs were expensive and they weren't really available. It takes a huge amount of space to store an MRI machine. Um, but now that those are becoming more and more common, we're seeing more of this because people will, you know, get an MRI in the emergency room and things like that. Yeah. Awesome. So one thing that I hear from almost every client that I evaluate is that they like the way that I ask the question of when were you diagnosed? I tend to stray away from asking, when did you get MS or how long have you had MS? Because most of the time, They'll tell me, well, I was diagnosed in this year, but I've had, I think I've had it for 15 or 20 years. So can you explain why so many people say that? Absolutely. I think so many people say that because it's just so true and it's so prevalent. We have epidemiologic data that shows that people's visits to doctors, emergency rooms goes up dramatically in the five years before their diagnosis. So nobody knows they have MS, but they know something is wrong and they're, they're just going to their doctors for maybe unrelated things, but just the number of doctor and emergency room visits rises in, in people pre-diagnosis by about five years. So it's clear that at least five years beforehand, people are starting to have some, some vague symptoms or things they can't quite put their finger on, nothing that's typical for MS, nothing like a big relapse. Um, but, but not only do I hear this from my patients all the time too, but we actually have the data to show that there's definitely something going on. We can actually measure this phenomenon. Um, now, how do we get people diagnosed more quickly? That's something I'm working on. That's a big area of research too. The, the part that I struggle with is not people who have vague symptoms. No one really knows what's going on. It's not bothering them too much. They just don't know what's going on. Um, yet it's the people who have clear symptoms who go in for evaluation and are written off. And I think the part that really bothers me about it is that it is often, and because relapsing MS especially happens in young women, it is often chalked up to anxiety, like a pat on the head, like, oh, you're okay, sweetheart, don't worry about it, you're fine. You're just, you're just too much stress, too much alcohol, whatever it is that, that they wanna blame it on. Um, and I do see this sometimes, and I, I do believe it happens more in, in women of color too. Um, so that is something that really you know, gets under my skin and I think has huge ramifications for those patients in the long run because they're not taken seriously and they're not listened to and they don't get the, the full evaluation that they deserve as early as they should be getting it. Yeah, that's, I mean, the later you're diagnosed, the later you're theoretically going to start any type of treatment, whether someone chooses a disease modifying therapy or holistic or a combination of both. So earlier diagnosis is clearly the better option here. Now, what are, you mentioned a few already, but what are some other diseases that might mimic MS and therefore may cause a misdiagnosis? Cause that seems to be pretty common. 
Yeah, I get this question a lot. So I did a study uh, four years ago where I looked at all the new patients coming into two independent MS clinics. One was UCLA and one was Cedars-Sinai. And these were new patients. They were coming in not for evaluation of their diagnosis. They'd already been diagnosed. Most of them were on disease-modifying therapy. They were coming in because like their doctor retired and they needed to establish care with somebody new or they had questions about their medications, things like that. And because our practice in both of these clinics is to start by confirming the diagnosis and everyone that walks in the door, we could go back and look at our records and see how many of these people didn't actually have MS. And um, again, two separate clinics at the UCLA clinic, it was 19% of people walking in the door did not have MS and at, at Cedars, it was 17%. So very similar numbers um, across both. And these are hundreds of patients that we looked at. So then we had a list of these people who had been told they had MS, had been treated for MS, but didn't actually have it. And we were able to look at what they actually had, what the other things masquerading as MS are most commonly. And it's a very um, varied list, the wide variety, some conditions are common, some super rare, uh, but the thing that rose to the top was migraines. And this has been brought up in other studies that were designed a little bit differently, but also tried to get at the heart of what kinds of things were mixed up with MS most often. And on the surface, it doesn't make any sense, right? MS, neurologic disability, trouble seeing or walking, migraines, it's a headache, right? Like why would anyone mix these two things up? But if we go below the surface a little bit, it does start to come together in that one, the type of people that start getting migraines are young women in their 20s, usually 20s, 30s, most biggest population, certainly anyone can have them, but that's the most common. And same with MS, right? Young women in their 20s, 30s, the most common type of person to get um, MS. And then the uh, symptoms, uh, migraines aren't just headaches. They can come with focal neurologic symptoms, including tingling, numbness, sometimes weakness, sometimes even trouble speaking. There's a famous video of a uh, sports anchor, a young woman who was on TV giving a live broadcast and she suddenly starts slurring her words and can't speak properly. And I think on YouTube, it's like labeled, oh, this person's having a stroke, but she's having a migraine. You can see it in real time. It's really fascinating. So migraines can cause all sorts of other neurologic symptoms outside of the headache and the pain ask an MS, right? Focal neurologic symptoms. And then the last thing that really trips people up is the MRIs. So MS, as we know, can cause spots in the brain and the white matter, so can migraines. Now, if you look at the spots, it's usually not too hard to tell the difference. Um, migraine spots tend to be a little bit smaller in the kind of middle part of the brain where MS lesions tend to be bigger and either on the outside or the deeper part of the brain. Um, but sometimes it's not so easy to tell the difference. So because of the demographics, like the population that gets it, the symptoms and the MRI changes, migraine is the most common thing that gets mixed up with MS. Wow, that's fascinating. So do you have any advice for someone who might be feeling some symptoms of MS and they think, maybe this is an option, maybe this is something that I have, but they don't currently have a diagnosis. So I would recommend speaking with your primary care physician first, um, because there are things like thyroid disease, migraines, B12 deficiency that they may want to check. And really the symptoms of MS are so varied, it's hard for me to give one answer, right? It kind of depends which of the symptoms that that person is experiencing. But I would start with a primary care physician um, or a neurologist, a general neurologist who can do a good evaluation, do a good neuro exam, pick up any deficits and potentially order an MRI if they think it's warranted. And then what about for someone who 
does have a diagnosis, but they think it's incorrect, would they follow those same steps or is there something different that they should do? This one's a little bit different. So you first want to start by speaking with whoever is managing your MS. So whether it's your MS neurologist or your general neurologist, and just ask them um, towards the beginning of the visit, hopefully, so they have time to actually address it, not as their hand is on the door about to leave, because this is a very serious question. It's a very heavy question, right? Yes. And just say, you know, hey, how sure are we that I have MS? Are there any things that give you pause about my diagnosis? And um, do you think there's any role for uh, further testing? And, and you can mention what, what the other thing is that you think you have. You know, usually people don't think they have MS. They might think that there's something else they're worried about. And this happens sometimes with, with my patients and they'll say, I'm really worried about, usually it's a rare genetic condition. I can say, well, you know, no, <laughs> because X, Y, Z, I may pull up brain MRIs on the internet of people who have that condition and show them their brain MRI and just show them how they have, you know, nothing close to that. And then they're really reassured and they can you know, feel better that, that they don't have that thing that's been eating away at them, right? That they've been kind of ruminating about. And so usually it's a very positive discussion that I can just make them feel better that they don't have that thing they're worried about. Um, and sometimes I'll say, you know, I don't know. I, I think you have MS based on XYZ. Here are the diagnostic criteria. Let's take a look at them and how your symptoms and your MRIs fit or don't fit. But this is the best thing that I can summarize for now is the diagnosis. Um, we've done these tests to rule out X, Y, and Z. Maybe we can do these tests or honestly, sometimes time is one of our best tools, right? We get more clues as time goes on. So I can say, I think you have MS, but you're right. I'm not hundred percent sure. Here are the things I'm looking out for with your new MRIs or new symptoms. This is why I examine this part of your exam every single time you come in. So I think it's perfectly fine to ask. And, and it usually opens up to a very fruitful discussion in my experience. Um, especially if you do it again early towards the beginning of the visit and not right at the end. Um, the different problem then becomes though, if that doctor doesn't just brushes you off, right? So um, maybe they're, they're busy and there's a lot else to talk about with that visit with your MS and they're worried about your medication or this new symptom that you came in with. Um, so if that happens, maybe suggesting that you schedule a different time to talk to them about this specific concern, come back another day for a different visit. If you're still not getting anything, it may be time to go for a second opinion. And if that's, that's your goal, I would recommend going on the National MS Society's website because they have a nice database of MS specialty physicians or people who are um, interested in MS specifically and are, are trained in that. And especially in the pandemic, this has gotten a little bit easier because more and more people are offering video visits, virtual visits. So if you were too far away to drive to a center in the past, it's still worth reconsidering this and looking to see and calling them and say, hey, are you offering any virtual consultations at this time? Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was great that you pointed out to mention it in the very beginning, because there is so much to talk about during those yeah. visits, especially because you typically only will see the client twice a year. So I like the point of mention it first, and then also maybe getting a second opinion. If you are working with a neurologist who does tend to maybe put their own priorities over yours as the patient. Well, their, their priorities are, are for you too, but we totally sometimes have a different agenda for sure. So I'll, I'll even put it this way. Like I'll go through all the, like here are all the things we checked your labs. And then I'll say, okay, that's my to-do list. What's on your to-do list for this visit? So I'll just put it out there as like, we may have completely different agendas. It's all for the same goal at the end of the day and taking the best care of that person. But yeah, they may have something they've been worried about that I haven't addressed yet. So 
on the same note, taking a list of your questions or your to-dos for that visit to your appointment. And again, mentioning them early on in the visit, make sure the doctor knows that you have that list so they can make sure to get to it. In addition to all the things that they're probably doing to keep you safe and well taken care of. Yeah, that's great. I love that having a list when you go in and then comparing, because you're right, there might be something that your neurologist wants to talk about that you didn't think of. So that's great. My final question for you today is, do you have any advice for someone who is newly diagnosed? Yeah, and I'm sorry if you can hear my baby crying in the background I'm working from home. So um, I have, uh, so advice for someone who's newly diagnosed, oh my gosh, um, so much. One, this is very, very hard. If you think this is hard, you are right. You're not alone in thinking that. Um, this is usually as hard as it gets, at least for many, many years, this first process, right? Getting the diagnosis, um, no one ever expects to be diagnosed with a chronic neurodegenerative incurable disease, right? If we're going to use all the horrible words associated with MS, which is usually the horrible stuff is what comes up when you're, you're new to it and you don't know what to expect and you Google it, God forbid. Um, it is hard. It is a very difficult time. A lot of my patients have a lot of anxiety come to the surface, depression around that time, but it gets better. It may take time, weeks, months, even a full year. I tell patients to give themselves a full year to really wrap their mind around what just happened. Um, and it's, it's stressful because you have to, um, come to terms with the diagnosis. You also have to figure out how are you going to treat this thing? How are you going to fight back? Which can be very overwhelming. We have over, you know, two dozen treatments these days, but that's an intimidating number to look at from the patient's perspective. So, um, give yourself a break is my biggest advice. Uh, you know, however much grace you can show yourself in this time, it's okay to feel overwhelmed. It's okay to feel stressed and anxious. And just know that it will get better and that eventually, hopefully, you know, that horrible place of your neurologist's office where all the bad things happen is just going to be like an errand you have to run. So i got to go to the neurologist visit, then I got to go to the grocery store to pick up whatever, you know, it, it becomes more routine. And that being diagnosed in 2021, almost 2022, is not the same as being diagnosed in, in you know, 2001. It's not even the same as 2011, to be honest. Like my favorite MS medications have come out in the last few years, the ones I use the most. So um, don't Google. This is, this is exactly why I'm developing a new course for people who are newly diagnosed, because it's a ton of info to take in. And you know, I have very little time with them. And the time I do have with them, I don't know if they hear anything because it's so, you know, big to be told you have MS that any of us, I think would be a little bit deer in the headlights. And so I'm developing a course that kind of lays it all out for them, how we diagnose, how we treat, um, to kind of supplement for all the time I can't spend in the clinic with them. The many hours that I would really just want to sit with that person and answer all their questions from start to finish. Um, so, so be kind to yourself get some good, reliable information, ask your doctor if there are any resources. Um, the National MS Society is a good one. Um, there's a couple of docs on YouTube, um, Dr. Boster, Dr. Beaver, myself now. Um, and then this new course that I'm developing to fill this gap because there really isn't a lot out there. Um, but try not to Google, try not to compare <laughs> yourself to people who were diagnosed before you because they were diagnosed in a very different time with different options. Um, and do have an eye towards how you're going to fight back, what, what treatments you're going to use to try to stop this thing from causing any more damage, because our biggest tool at this point is um, prevention, right? We don't have a lot that can turn back the clock. We have some things, physical therapy is the biggest one that comes to mind, right? Um, but there's not any, any pill, for example, I can use to turn back damage that, that happens. So prevention is a really big one. 
Um, and then, and then finally, you know, just um, know that it gets better. It gets better than, than how you're feeling at the time of your diagnosis. You just have to hang in there typically for most people for a few months before it starts to feel manageable. Wow. Those are all such great tips. I am super excited for your course to come out. I know you're still in the development phase of it, but do you have a name for it yet or anything we can keep our eyes out for? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So it's going to be called Conquer MS and it's not going to be an exhaustive, you know, hundreds of hours of video of everything I know about MS, because that's not what you need, especially when you're first diagnosed, but it is going to be answers to the most common questions that people remember to ask in that first visit. So things like why me? You know, how did I get MS? What was my risk? What's the risk to my kids? You know, if they, if they have kids or they plan on having kids, um, how do we treat a relapse? Uh, what even is a relapse? What kinds of things do I need to call you for or versus what things do I not need to worry about? Because getting diagnosed with MS, you're going to worry about every little twitch and tingle. That's totally normal. Um, the disease modifying therapy. So I go into detail about the different options and, and who might be best suited for what and, and talk a little bit about pregnancy with MS and breastfeeding. And then we'll dive into symptom management because that's another huge thing for, for taking care of MS uh, and wrap up with a lot of uh, information on lifestyle changes, wellness, diet, exercise, things like that. I'm seriously so excited for that. I can already think Thank of a you. bunch of people who would benefit from that. So oh, great. <laughs> yeah, when that is released, I will definitely make sure our listeners find out about it. But for now, can you just let our listeners know how they can find you? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram, which is how I connected with you. Uh, very grateful for that. I just started a new YouTube channel just to have a more searchable kind of bank of all the information I was putting out there. Um, and then the uh, there's an info uh, spreadsheet or basically where you just put your name and email. If you are interested in that course, you'll be one of the first to know when it comes out. And the link to that is in uh, in my YouTube. Awesome. And I'll put all of those links in the show notes here too. So if you guys are driving or can't look right now, just come back a little bit later. Dr. Casey, thank you so much. I love just picking your brain, hearing what's new thank in research, you. and it's been very insightful. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you love this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.